This is the History Tavern Podcast. You don't need to look beyond the United States Constitution or the actions of the United States Supreme Court in the decades leading up to the Civil War to understand how deeply rooted slavery and the protection of slavery was in the nation's founding. In fact, Dr. Paul Finkelman believes that slavery was a central issue. In this episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talk to Dr. Finkelman about two of his books, Slavery and the Founders, Race and Liberty in the Age of Jefferson, and Supreme Injustice, Slavery in the Nation's Highest Court. Dr. Finkelman talked about the debates over slavery at the Constitutional Convention, Thomas Jefferson's legacy as a slave owner and perpetuator of slavery, and the roles John Marshall, Joseph Story, and Roger Tawney played in protecting slavery as justices on the United States Supreme Court. Dr. Finkelman is currently the president of Gratz College in Pennsylvania and is a distinguished professor of law emeritus at Albany Law School. Our interview picks up after I ask Dr. Finkelman about the circumstances that led to the Constitutional Convention of 1787. So the first thing to understand is that the people who are pushing for the convention, Madison, Hamilton, a few others, are hoping to rewrite the whole frame of government. They don't want just amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Uh, the Articles of Confederation have proved to be not workable. Uh, some, some historians say they were a failure. I don't think they're a failure because, after all, it was under the Articles of Confederation that the United States beats the most powerful military force in the world, right? We fought the British not only to a standstill, but to an embarrassing standstill with, a, with an embarrassing final defeat at Yorktown, right? Uh, the United States had managed to negotiate loans from France and Holland, negotiate support from France, Holland, Russia. The United States did reasonably well under, a, under the Articles, but the Articles are also not well suited for creating a strong nation. And chaos has emerged. There is uh, interstate rivalry. States tax the goods coming from other states. There's no uniform currency. New Jersey is described as a barrel that's tapped at both ends because if you live in northern New Jersey and you import something that goes through New York and you pay New York taxes and then you take pay New Jersey taxes. If you live in southern New Jersey, it goes into Pennsylvania and then you set Pennsylvania taxes and then, and then New Jersey taxes. So, so it's not a smooth operation. There had been a brief attempt to fix some of this in what was going to be the Annapolis Convention, uh, which met in Maryland, but not enough delegates. From, Maryland doesn't even send a delegation to the Annapolis Convention. Uh, and so it fails. And it's at that convention that Madison and Hamilton get together and say, we've got to do something to save the country. We've got to have a real national convention. They shrewdly do two things. One is they get Virginia to suggest it because Virginia is the biggest state, and to get Washington to kind of back it. He's the, the most important person. And second, they get Virginia to suggest that it should be in Philadelphia. So it doesn't look like Virginia is kind of making a power grab. And Philadelphia is the biggest city. Philadelphia is the best city to have it. And then they get the Congress meeting in New York to endorse it. So they have the convention. Now, some of the people at the convention are fully aware of the enormous distinctions between northern and southern states. 
they know that Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island and New Hampshire have either ended slavery or in the process of ending slavery. They know Pennsylvania is in the process of ending slavery. But they haven't really thought this through very well. And they don't fully understand just how offensive slavery is to a significant number of people in the world. These are, I'm talking about Southerners. Sure, yeah. And while many of them are nationalists who've been in the Congress and been in the Army and worked with people from different parts of the country, some were pretty parochial. They were local. You know, they hadn't been involved in, in, in the nation's And so I don't think that at least the Southerners are expecting slavery to become an issue because they haven't run into that many people who are going to make it an issue. Um, but it becomes an issue on day one. So whatever their expectation is, on the first day of substantive debates, Randolph presents the Randolph Plan or the Virginia Plan, which says the representation in Congress should be based on the population. And one of the Northerners says should be based on the free population. And that starts the ball rolling. Sure. So, I mean, can, can you get more into that? I mean, it ultimately leads to the three-fifths uh, three clause in the right. Constitution. Um, so uh, who's on what side? I mean, it, I, I could be over, oversimplifying this, but um, it also seems like the Northerners are somewhat unprepared to really uh, dive into this debate uh, because they don't seem to win a lot of these arguments on slavery. They concede a lot. So... What's on the well, table regarding representation, and how do they end up at three-fifths? Right, and, and, I, and I think the answer to that is this, that the Northerners are unprepared for the incredibly pro-slavery view of, of Southerners. Right. They're, they're, not, they're not fully prepared for what they're going to face. And so they are, um, and, and they are divided within their own community. There's not a solid northern view, right? Right. Um, there are some people in the convention who basically think, this isn't my problem. The, the Connecticut, one of the Connecticut delegates says, what enriches a part enriches the whole. And so yeah. if South Carolina wants to continue the slave trade, why should we care? He says, I've never owned a slave. I don't want to be involved with slavery. But if you want to be involved with slavery, you know, I, I, I'm not going to comment on that. Others think that having a, a national government is simply much more important than anything else. Now, let me make it clear from the beginning. At no point in the convention is the issue of slavery or freedom on the table. No one at the convention ever suggests that there should be an end to slavery in the United States. Nobody suggests abolition. But does happen is at the convention, the South Carolinians who were obsessively personal try to make some of the debates into a debate over whether there will be slavery or not, even though nobody's ever suggested there should be. So some of the debates are simply about political power. Under the Articles of Confederation, each state gets one vote in Congress. Well, that's kind of absurd to think about. You know, the, the, the population differences are immense. And even, even in a country like the United States where, where every state gets two senators and it doesn't matter whether almost nobody lives in the state, like, say, 
Wyoming, or whether close to 40 million people live in the state like California. The idea that each state gets a single vote is really, truly crazy. So in, to give you an idea of, of the population issues, at the time of the Constitutional Convention, the Articles of Confederation exist, and each state gets one vote in Congress. There's something completely crazy about this. Delaware has 59,000 people in the state. Rhode Island has 69,000 people. Pennsylvania has more than 400,000 people. And Virginia has 691,000 people. So if you think that Delaware and Rhode Island could outvote Virginia, it's crazy. Right. So everybody at the convention probably understands that there's going to have to be some recognition of population in the legislature. So when the Virginia delegation says that the representation in Congress should be based on the population, they're looking at their 691,000. They're the biggest state in the country. On the other hand, of that 691,000, only 391,000 are white and 300,000 are black and 288,000 are slaves. There are, there are 12,000 free blacks, right? So, so when Virginia says it should be based on population, Pennsylvania says, wait a minute, how can you count 288,000, 300,000 slaves in a government for free people? So, so right away you have a debate over not the idea of population-based representation. Everybody pretty much agrees with that. Sure. Even Delaware sort of knows it's going to happen. They don't like it. New Jersey knows it's going to happen. They don't like it. But the notion that, De that Virginia should get 40% of its members of Congress based on its slaves is simply not acceptable to Northern. And what's fascinating about this debate is that in the debate, the Southerners completely flip from the position they had taken in the Congress 12 years ago. During the revolution, there had been a proposal that each state would give money to support the national government and troops to support the national army based on their population. And immediately, the Southerners, led by Virginia, says, well, it's got to be the free population because slaves are property. You can't count slaves for purposes of taxation. And, and at one point, one uh, South Carolinian says, there's no more propriety in counting slaves for taxation than it would be in counting the sheep of New Hampshire. To which Ben Franklin says, well, there's a big difference between the sheep and the slaves. The sheep will never make a revolution. In other words, the, the sheep aren't a threat to our national security to stand up. Right. But in the end, in the end, the Articles of Confederation say that allocation of both taxation and soldiers to provide for the army will be based on the free population. That's a huge win for the South, and it is based on their pounding the table and saying they're property, they're not people, they're property, they're not people. Fast forward 12 years later, oh no, they're people. They're, we've got to count them all. Right, right. The Northerners object to this. And the Southerners respond by saying, look, representation doesn't only represent people, it also represents the wealth of the society. And our slaves contribute to the wealth. Our slaves are part of the contributions to American society that Virginia or South Carolina give. 
And so the answer would be, we should count that for representation. And eventually they come up with a three-fifths compromise. And basically what that compromise says, it does not say that a black person is three-fifths of a person. What it says is that when allocating representation in Congress, you will count slaves at a three-fifths ratio. Free blacks would be counted as 100%. One, one more piece of this. The Southerners want to count slaves at 100% because they'll get more representation in Congress. The Northerners say you can't count slaves at all because you treat them as property, and then they, the South will get fewer representatives in Congress. But they're not talking about who's pro-slavery and who's not, because the Northerners, being anti-slavery, don't want to count slaves at all. The Southerners, being pro-slavery, suddenly want to count slaves. Now, why three-fifths? Turns out three-fifths is a probably a pretty good estimate of the economic value of slave labor versus free labor. That is, slaves produce about three-fifths as much as free people. Am I saying this right, that three-fifths also ended up applying to the Electoral College? So as a compromise, the convention says that we will use three-fifths not only for representation in Congress, but also for direct taxes, okay? And what they mean by direct taxes is, is a per capita head tax. So if the Congress says Virginia must send the U.S. government $10 for every person in Virginia, it would be $10 for every person because you apply the three-fifths clause. However, almost everybody at the convention thinks this really isn't much as a compromise because nobody expects direct taxation, and in fact, it never happens. There's never a head tax. Then, much later on in the convention, they're debating the election of the president. And James Madison says the fittest thing, which by which he means the most appropriate thing, would be for the people to elect the president. But he says we can't do that because the South won't get any value from its slaves. And so he comes up with the Electoral College, which is based on congressional representation, which is based on the three-fifths clause. So the Electoral College, which everybody obsesses about today during presidential elections, is a is a creature of slavery. It's designed to give Southerners more power in the election. I'm so interested in sort of, sort of the Northern perspective in all of this. And I, I guess, the, the again, it seems like they, they concede a lot. The Northerners concede a lot. But one thing they do get, and that you talk about a little bit, is the word slavery is never used in the Constitution, at least not right, until the 13th Amendment. At the convention, one of the delegates, Gouverneur Morris, who... Is an interesting guy because he represents Pennsylvania, but he's actually a New Yorker. But he happens to be in Pennsylvania when the Pennsylvania legislature's picking its delegation, and they pick him because he's a very smart guy and very useful. Gouverneur Morris, at one point when they're debating the slave trade law, says, "Why don't we just say that Georgia and South Carolina can import slaves if they want? Let's call it what it is." And everybody gets bent out of shape. And, you know, they say, we can't single out one state. And then the Connecticut delegation says, we shouldn't put the word slavery in because it will be displeasing to some of our constituents. So what the Connecticut delegation is doing is saying, we would like to hide the fact that this is a pro-slavery constitution. We don't want the voters to know this. 
The Southerners don't care because the Southerners want the clauses that they're going to get. So this isn't a victory for the North. This is a victory for slavery because they get slavery without having to identify what it is that they're doing. Just one, one more thing before uh, we move on to the Northwest Ordinance. There's a fugitive slave clause in the Constitution. Right. Uh, and that's something uh, that Southerners, at least one in particular that you talk about, I think Pickney was quite excited about. And that's sort of a that's a new protection that that didn't exist uh, in in the colony before. Correct. That's right. Before the revolution, if a slave were at a way to another state, the other state had to cooperate in catching the slave and sending it back. And the states could say, well, sorry, we don't recognize fugitive slaves. We're going to free your slave. Or we're certainly not going to help you get your slave back. And late in the convention, the Southerners asked for a clause to allow them to recover their fugitive slaves. There's a brief debate. Some Northerners mock them, basically saying, you know, if you can't keep track of your slave, it's not a problem. And in the end, the clause passes. Nobody knows what it's supposed to do. Nobody knows it's going to be controversial. But there are other clauses that are pro-slave. Absolutely. For example... There are two clauses in which the federal government promises to protect the states from rebellions and insurrections. Well, all of the textbooks we always read, they talk about the Shays Rebellion, which was a rebellion of farmers who didn't want to pay taxes because they didn't have any money to pay them. But for Southerners, this, the rebellion clause, the, the insurrections clause, is about slavery. They come back and they say, the federal government's going to help put down slave rebellions. And some Northerners complain about it being marched to the South to protect the Southerners from their own slaves. There are two clauses that prohibit taxes on exports. Why? Because Southerners are producing most of the export products. Imagine, for example, if the United States could tax some exports. We, after all, make some things that nobody else has. We make things that everybody else wants. U.S. could put a tax on it. Imagine if we put a, a one-cent tax on every record recorded by Elvis Presley that was sold overseas. We could have balanced the budget. But you can't have an export tax. So there are lots of things in the Constitution that were specifically prepared to protect slavery. The most important of all is the understanding of the Convention that the Constitution is a government of limited powers and Congress cannot do what it isn't empowered to do. And so it cannot end slavery. It cannot touch slavery because slavery um, isn't something that Congress can write about. And, and that becomes a centrally valuable tool for Southerners because up until the Civil War, they constantly say you can't, you know, you can't mess with our slavery. So Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who is a Revolutionary War hero, a general, he says, we have a security that the general government can never emancipate them, for no such authority is granted, and it is admitted on all hands that the general government has no powers but what are expressly granted by the Constitution, and that all rights not expressed were reserved by the several states. So Pinckney basically says to the South Carolina legislature, ratify the Constitution, the national government can never end slavery. Wow. And that is orthodox, well understood constitutional law up until the Civil War. When Lincoln is inaugurated president, he says, I have no power to end slavery in the states where it exists. And he's right. That's a, an A answer on a con law exam in 1860.
You can't end slavery by federal acts. So you've established, and it was known in uh, after the uh, the Constitution was ratified that it was a pro-slavery document. The Northwest yes. Ordinance, however, uh, which is which is passed in the same year, I believe, that the Constitution is ratified. And well, it's the same year that Northwest Ordinance is passed. The same year the Constitution is written. Is written. Okay, that's a remarkable document in the in the sense that it it doesn't give the government any power to enforce it, but it prohibits slavery in the Northwest Territory, which is becomes Ohio, Illinois, right. so on. So can you talk, how, how does that happen at the same time that the this pro-slavery document that is the Constitution is written? So Congress at the end of the revolution is bankrupt, has no money. It's printing paper money, which has a decreasing value. There used to be a phrase in American English called not worth a continental which meant it wasn't worth a continental dollar. The one asset that Congress has is this vast chunk of land west of the 13 states. Not only Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, but also Alabama, Mississippi, plausibly Tennessee, plausibly Kentucky, although Kentucky really is claimed by Virginia. So, so, so it has the, 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 what we call the Midwest today, plus Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi, and that part of Louisiana that's east of the Mississippi River. And Congress would like to use this land to raise money. And a consortium of New England investors say, we're willing to buy a gigantic chunk of territory from the U.S. government. We'll pay cash. We'll give you gold. Not gold. We'll give you gold for all this land. If you will pass a law that will set up a process for governing this, because nobody's going to move to Ohio unless there's going to be a government. Now, one of the curiosities of the Northwest Ordinance is that it undermines the theory that is embedded in a certain kind of machismo attitude of American culture that settlers went out there and conquered the West. The settlers don't go out there until the government sets up a government. People aren't going to move to Ohio until they know, one, that they can own the land that they're going to live on, two, the government is going to set up a system government, three, that they will be protected not only from Native Americans, but also perhaps from the British coming down from Canada. And so when this consortium of Greenland investors say, we'll buy all this land, if you pass an ordinance to govern this area, Congress says yes. And in the process of this, the New England landowners say, we don't want slavery in the Northwest. And so Congress says, no slavery north and west of the Ohio River. They're abolishing slavery in an area where they don't think slavery exists. What they don't know is that there are thousands of slaves in what is today Indiana and Illinois. But by passing a ban on slavery north of the Ohio River, the implication is that slavery will be legal south of the Ohio River. And it is. So it's a good deal for Southerners. They get all of this land, and slavery moves south and west, moves into the tobacco country of Kentucky and Tennessee, and later the cotton country of Kentucky and Tennessee, and most importantly, Alabama, Mississippi, parts of Louisiana. I want to go back to the Fugitive Slave Clause and the um, case of John Davis. Uh, which okay. you read about in your book, can can you talk a little bit about that case and what you know and and sort of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793? John Davis is a Virginia slave whose master moves to Pennsylvania 
and John Davis becomes free. Later, some Virginians go to Pennsylvania and seize John Davis and drag him back to Virginia. They don't like the idea that Pennsylvania can free people who are brought into Pennsylvania. The governor of Pennsylvania tries to extradite the Virginians for kidnapping. The governor of Virginia says, grabbing a black person is not a crime. Governor of Virginia doesn't even want to debate whether he's really a slave or not. Governor of Virginia is basically saying, you know, black people aren't protected from kidnapping. I'm not going to send these people back. Governor of Pennsylvania goes to Washington, who's his friend. He, he, the governor of Pennsylvania was also a general during the revolution, Governor Mifflin, and he says, will you please help me here? Washington passes it off to his attorney general. His attorney general takes it to Congress. Congress passes a law which provides a process for the extradition of fugitives from justice, that is criminals, and a process for the extradition of fugitives from John Davis has never returned to Pennsylvania, and neither are the people who get him. But the South now has a federal law that allows Southerners to use the federal courts and state courts and the power of the national government to recover fugitive slaves. Before we move on to the Supreme Court, uh, I want to talk about Thomas Jefferson. You spend a lot of uh, two chapters in your book talking about Jefferson, and of course, he's all over your book and other places. Can you talk about the coverage that Jefferson received, the historiography of Jefferson, and then what, how you wanted to portray him. Jefferson is born into a family that owns many slaves. Jefferson's earliest memory is being carried on horseback by a slave who has him resting on pillow. Jefferson is around, surrounded by slaves his entire life. Slaves wait on him. They provide him with all of the benefits of his life. They grow the tobacco, which helps make him wealthy. He can always sell slaves when he's short of cash. He sells about 85 slaves in the 1790s in order to raise money. At a time when he's constantly buying luxury goods, wine, art, and Europe. Slaves are simply a commodity for Jefferson that he can convert to cash when he needs it. And at the same time, Slaves are a valuable workforce that can provide cash for Jews. Jefferson is personally deeply racist. He writes in his book notes on the state of Virginia that blacks are intellectually inferior to whites. They are stupid. They are lazy. He says they smell bad. He says they're as brave as whites, but that's only because they lack foresight. So they don't know when they're going into danger. So that way. He says they have no ability in art. He says they have no ability to use it. He sees them having no value at all except as labor to provide wealth for white people. And that's his life. And people who don't want to face that don't want to face a reality. Now, Jefferson also has a long-time sexual relationship with one of the slaves, Sally Evans. This makes him not much different than many other slaves. Not all male slave owners had children with their slaves, but many did. Nobody saw anything wrong with it. At the same time, unlike other slave owners, Jefferson writes all this language about liberty. You know, we're all created equal, endowed by the creator with healing our rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unfortunately, he doesn't really believe any of this for slaves. He doesn't believe black people are entitled to life. He doesn't believe black people are entitled to the pursuit of happiness. And um, he can be deeply cruel. When one of his slaves annoys him because he's not properly deferential, and because he doesn't do the work he needs to have done, Jefferson has him sold. Not just sold, but he tells his overseer to take him out of his cabin in the middle of the night 
and take him down the mountain. Market shells up on the mountain. Take him down the mountain. And in the morning, it would be as though the earth had swallowed him up. And the overseer is not to tell anybody what happened to him. So here's a man who's pulled away from his family, his friends, everything he's known. His family has no idea what happens to him. And he will never be heard from again. This is the real Thomas Jefferson. Now, is Thomas Jefferson a great writer? Yes. Is he a philosopher of sorts? Yes. Is he very smart? Yes. Does he have talents? Absolutely. He's an inventor. He's a scientist. But if you think about his science, it's really interesting because he is an early experimental scientist. And yet he makes claims for blacks that even the most minimal amount of scientific investigation would disprove. He claims that blacks have blood that's blacker than white people. Well, he's got hundreds of slaves. He could have pricked a few fingers and compared them to his own and discovered, hey, no, the blood's the same color. doesn't want to do that. He's obsessed with sexuality in blacks. He's obsessed with blacks being sexual. He complains that blacks are going to chase after white women. By the way, this is just before he begins to have a lifelong relationship with a black woman. So it's he who's chasing after a black woman, not slaves who are chasing after black women. He says that blacks don't fall in love. He says their, their, their love isn't the tender emotions of white people. Rather, he says it's just lust. And he then says their griefs are transient. And what he means by that is that if you sell a black person away from her husband or away from his wife, that black person will get over it and marry somebody else because they don't love the way white people love. Jefferson gives all Southern whites intellectual and scientific and cultural and philosophical permission to destroy black families whenever they want because he says they don't really love each other. That's who Thomas Jefferson is. Now, the sad thing is almost all of his biographers have ignored this, run away from it, hidden. Let me give you two examples. A historian at the University of Virginia named Dumas Malone, who won the Pulitzer Prize for biography of Jefferson, wrote in his biography something to the effect of when Jefferson wanted to free a slave, he would only free a slave if he thought the slave was ready to be free and live on his own. And then he has, for example, he gives the example of James Hemmings, and then he gives the example of Robert Hemmings. If you read this, you would think that Jefferson freed lots of slaves, and these are just two examples. But in fact, they're the only two slaves he voluntarily And it's not clear that even this was voluntary. Really, these emancipations were, really these manumissions, the private freedom of the slave, were coerced by other people. So Malone is essentially hiding the fact that Jefferson almost never freed slaves. Another example, two historians in the 1940s published a collection of Thomas Jefferson's letters. One of the letters is to a man named Edward Coles, who is Jefferson's neighbor. Coles writes Jefferson after the War of 1812 and says, you know, I read your stuff on liberty. I read the Declaration. I believe in liberty. I'm going to go free my slaves. I'm going to take my slaves to Illinois and free them because I have read you. You have convinced me. And he then furthermore says, now that you're retired, now that you're no longer in politics, wouldn't it be great if you did something, said something about slavery? took a stand against slavery. Jefferson writes Coles a very long letter. And in the first two pages of the letter, he says how wonderful it is that the generation raised on the mother's milk of liberty. And you gotta you gotta love a guy who can write like this, right? Like Coles, raised on the mother's milk of liberty are going to come into their own and they will end slavery. 
And then he spends about twice as much telling Coles not to create space. When the editors of the first easily available collection of Jefferson's letters published this letter, they deleted the whole last half of the letter. They deleted all the part about keeping you slaves because they didn't want people to see what kind of guy Jefferson really was. They lied about it. And, and, and the problem with this is when you lie about somebody and generation after generation is told how wonderful he is. I mean, I was literally told growing up that Thomas Jefferson freed his slaves. So that's nonsense. He didn't. They were all auctioned off to pay his debts. Families were destroyed. Here's one more example. Jefferson has a blacksmith who's also a member of the Hemis family. And in his will, he says that his blacksmith will be freed and can live in his cabin at Monticello with his family for the rest of his life. And he can keep his blacksmith tools. The only problem is Jefferson doesn't free the rest of his family. He doesn't free his wife and children. So when this man becomes free, he watches his wife and children auctioned off to about five different buyers. Jefferson doesn't care. He doesn't see slaves as people. He sees them mostly as commodities. And I thought it was interesting, you write, uh, quote, his hatred of slavery was unproductive and limited to complaints about how it, how it affected whites. Uh, yes. So, you know, so that, which makes it easier to understand that his opposition to slavery was really philosophical in, in, in reality, as you've just mentioned all these examples. Um, you know, at every st- Washington freed his slaves at death. Washington opposed um, slave sales. Uh, you know, and, and compared them to cattle sales. Um, and here's Jefferson. You know, at the end of his life, buying uh, expensive artwork and boxes of wine, um, but then having to auction off his slaves. In the in the 1790s, one of his friends in England writes to him and says, "What do you think of selling slaves?" And Jefferson says, I only sell slaves for two reasons. One, to reunite families, which would be a good thing. My slave married your slave, so one of us should sell one of the slaves together so the family can live together. I only sell slaves to reunite families or as punishment. But, of course, what the Englishman wouldn't understand is is the punishment is permanent lifetime exile. It's a pretty severe punishment. But in the same month that he writes this letter saying, I only sell slaves for these reasons, he writes to his plantation manager and says, I need money, sell slaves. So he's just hypocritical. Yeah. In his notes on the state of Virginia, he has a long passage in which he says how terrible slavery is because it makes whites into tyrants. It teaches young kids to oppress people their own age because they're black. But he doesn't say that this is bad for black people. He says it's bad for white people. Right. And of course, he doesn't say, gee, it's bad for me. I should get rid of my slaves. Between 1782 and 1810, the, black po- the free black population, non-slave population in Virginia, grows from about 2,000 to over 30,000. This is a result of literally hundreds and hundreds and thousands of slave owners in Virginia privately freeing their slaves. George Washington frees all his slaves in his will and gives them land. A man who goes down in history as Counselor Carter frees 500 slaves. He like giving away a billion dollars because they have concluded that slavery is wrong. But the Virginia Supreme Court in 1799 upholds two wills where a father and a son had provided that if Virginia allows slaves to be freed in Virginia, they want their slaves free. Another son who is the brother of the other 
guy who wrote the will, has to sue all of his relatives to collect these slaves and free them. The Virginia Supreme Court, it's actually the Virginia Court of Appeals, it's the highest court in Virginia, like in New York, it's the Court of Appeals. The Virginia Court of Appeals upholds the rules. So there are people in Virginia who are taking steps against slavery. Jefferson simply isn't one of them. As president, he does everything he can to protect slavery. He attempts to destroy Haiti, which is a free black republic. His son-in-law, who, who is a member of Congress, says that Jefferson and his son-in-law, who's a member of Congress, says that he, the son-in-law, he's really speaking for his father-in-law, Jefferson, says that he's willing to spend the United States into bankruptcy to destroy the black republic. So he wants to make war on free blacks in Haiti, as well as in the United States. John Marshall was treated pretty generously in history as well. And I think like Jefferson, uh, sort of somehow remains separate from Virginia slaveholders, somehow, some, somehow uh, maintain a reputation of he might have owned a few slaves, but it didn't affect the way that he ruled on the court. Um, so can you talk about Marshall's background? I think that, the, you know, uh, some of your research uncovered the fact that he owned many slaves and, it, you know, he, and he profited off of them and he, he understood the business and that's how he got wealthy. Uh, so can you talk about Marshall's background as a, uh, sure. in general and as a slave, as a slave owner? So I published a book in 2018 called Supreme Injustice, Slavery in the Nation's Highest Court. And the book focuses on three Supreme Court justices and the relationship to slavery. And when I started to write about Marshall, I really didn't think I was going to have anything new to say. All of the biographies of Marshall said the same thing. He owned a dozen house servants in Virginia. He didn't like slavery. He went along with it. He wasn't an active slave owner. He wasn't actively involved in the business of slavery. He just has house servants. By the way, a dozen slaves would, would have been a million dollars a huge amount of slaves. And that's what I assume. And in writing the book, I read the biographies of Marshall, and they all said the same thing. And a couple of the biographies said that Marshall wanted to free his slave, Robin, his faithful manservant, as he called him, if Robin was willing to accept this freedom. And I read that in one of the book, one of the biographies of Marshall, and I thought, well, that's kind of odd. I mean, why would a slave not want to be? Why would a slave reject me? And I said, I think I need to read the will. And so I read John Marshall's will, and it was fascinating. The first paragraph said, I give to my wife the following slaves. And he names 15 of them, plus the unnamed children of one of his female slaves. So I said, okay, it's 18 slaves, not a dozen. Big deal, right? It's not going to change history. But then I look at the next clause in the will, and the next clause in the will says that he gives to his nephew his plantation at Chickahominy, which is today's suburban Richmond, along with all of the land, buildings, equipment, animals, and slaves. Plantation is usually considered 20 slaves. So I thought, well, wait a minute. He's got 20 slaves at Chickahominy plus the 15 or 18 in Richmond. That's a lot more than he does. And then the next clause, he says... I give to my son Edward the land he lives on with the animals, buildings, and usual number of slaves. And then he says, I was going to give the land and the slaves to my son John Jr., but since he's embarrassed me, John was a drunk and he was always dead. Instead, I'm setting up a trust of the land and the slaves for John's wife and 
her children that it's his grandchildren. So I said, wait a minute. He's got three sets of people who are getting lots of slaves. So I did what a good scholar should do. And I have to say, no other biographer of John Marshall has ever done this. I actually went to the census and looked at the records. And lo and behold, he's got 62 slaves at Chickahawney. Ed, Edward Marshall has 27 slaves in 1830. John Marshall Jr. has 38 or 39 slaves on his land. And then I find other parcels of land where John Marshall owns slaves, but they're not farmed by any of his children. They're farmed by overseers on John Marshall's behalf. So what it comes down to is Marshall owns more like 150 slaves than it does. And it turns out that he'd given slaves to his older sons already. And then I looked at his personal diaries where he kept a record of everything he bought and sold. And I, ju I just want to read to you. I, I don't like to read books, you know, read directly in an interview like this, but I, I think it illustrates how, Mar how Marshall acted. So in the 1780s, Marshall writes in his diary whenever he's buying his stuff. So in 1789, he says he paid 38 pounds for, quote, a Negro woman. He later says that in 1789, he bought Negro Bob for 50 pounds. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let, let me back that up. Sure. In 1789, he bought Hannibal for 70 pounds. In 1790, he buys Negro Bob for 50 pounds. In June 1790, he buys Dick and others. He doesn't say who the others are. And it keeps going and going and going. In the 1780s and 90s, when he is only recently married, at first he has no children, then he has one children, he's living in Richmond, he buys a dozen slaves. This is a huge investment. By the way, a slave is worth what a car is worth. And you say, well, what's a car worth? They say, well, it depends on whether it's a Ford Falcon or a Mercedes, doesn't it? But the reality is that a car is a valuable thing. A slave is a valuable thing. Slaves are, in fact, the single most expensive commodities you can buy in Virginia. He's buying them all the time. He talks about going out to argue a case, and he buys a Negro woman and her child. He doesn't care what happened to the other children the woman might have had. He doesn't care whether the woman might have had a husband. He just buys the woman and the child and takes them back. So he buys people his whole life. When his son John dies and he's in debt, Marshall, who's an enormously wealthy man, one of the richest men in Virginia, at one point he owns 200,000 acres of land. Rather than pay off his son's debts by selling some land, cashing in some bank stock, he sells a bunch of slaves, auctions them off to pay his son's debts. So as a, as a human being, he is constantly in the business of buying and selling people. And previous historians had sort of written as if he was sort of uh, removed from that kind Absolutely. of thing. Yeah, Absolutely. They, they all say he owns a dozen slaves. By the way, one, one distinguished law professor at the University of Virginia writes a huge, bio, a huge book about the Marshall Court and describes the personal slave owning of all of the members of the court and then say Marshall owns, says Marshall owns no slaves. You know, what, what planet was this guy on? But here's the thing. Legal scholars love John Marshall. You read about John Marshall, and it's always the great Chief Justice John Marshall. After a while, you begin to think that his first name is The, and his middle name is Great Chief Justice John, and his last name is Marshall. The Great Chief Justice. 
the man who made the Supreme Court, the man who made the Constitution. And they so they don't want to face the reality that he buys and sells human beings. The other thing that the scholars all say is that he heard very few cases involving slavery. And that he doesn't really think much about slavery because he doesn't have important cases. And he doesn't want to threaten the state laws, so he doesn't do anything to threaten slavery in the states. Well, it turns out that the Marshall Court hears 14 cases involving black freedom. With three exceptions, all of these cases are based on the laws of Washington, D.C., District of Columbia. So they don't affect state law at all. In a number of these cases, jury trials have ruled that the slaves should be free because they were illegally held as slaves. In one case, a jury said that this person had never been a slave because his mother had never been a slave, and so he had been illegally kept as a slave his whole life. Where Marshall wrote the opinions in seven of these cases, Marshall reverses freedom in every case. In one case, he writes, the statute is ambiguous, and it could be decided one way or the other without doing any harm to the statute. And when I read this, I thought, ah, oh, he's going to free the slave. But no, he decides that it's ambiguous, I'm going to decide for the slave owner. So he always protects slavery, never supports black freedom. And I think he does this because he's a guy who's always buying slaves. And so he can imagine himself being in a situation where a person bought a slave that turns out not to be a slave, he'd be out his money. He'd have to go find the seller and sue the seller. That would be hard. It's remarkable, uh, and you write his jurisprudence on slavery is clumsy and uninspired. Um, here's the justice who uh, writes a decision in Marbury versus Madison, which is which is measured and which is uh, which is admired by legal scholars up to this day. And then you have Marshall and we'll talk about two other justices who twist themselves in knots legally and otherwise to rule sort of in favor of slavery. So, so here's an interesting thing. In, in the D.C. cases, a strict reading of the law would have required Marshall to free a number of people. Marshall never le- reads the laws restricted. At one point, in fact, he says that to read the law this way would be to violate the spirit of the law. Well, I'm sorry, you're not, you know, you're not a spiritual justice. You're a lawyer. You're a judge. You read the law. You obey the law. You follow the rules. And by the way, Marshall reads the Constitution very strictly and narrowly in Marbury versus Madison. He's perfectly capable of reading constitutions and statutes to get the result he wants. In admiralty law, Marshall is very flexible. And his flexibility almost always supports the, the, the statutes of the federal government. But in cases involving the African slave trade, Marshall reads the laws as narrowly as possible and always supports the slave traders. Never upholds a prosecution for violating the laws banning the African slave trade. Furthermore, in his private life, Marshall goes to the Virginia legislature after the Nat Turner Rebellion, which is a slave rebellion in Virginia, and asks the legislature to appropriate money to remove all of the free black people from Virginia. He says that half the black people in Richmond are criminals. That's nonsense. But this is a politician who hates free black people, who hates the idea of free blacks, and so he's begging the legislature to expel them all from the state. By the way, his slave Robin never gets to be free. In his will, Marshall says 
that he, it's his wish that Robin would be free if he wants, but if he and if he does choose to be free and to go to a state where he can be free, he gets a hundred he gets fifty dollars. If he goes to a state where he can be free, he gets fifty dollars. And if he's willing to go to Africa, the country of Liberia, Marshall's estate would give him a hundred dollars. But under Virginia law, the only way he could remain in Virginia is if a court gave him a authorization to remain in the state. Now Marshall is one of the great lawyers of all times. He could easily have gone to a Virginia court and say, I want to free this man when I die. Would you please give me pre-authorization? Or he could have gone to a Virginia court and said, I want to free this guy now, and then gone to Robin and said, Robin, I'm freeing you, and I'm making sure that you can stay in Virginia for the rest of your life, but I want to hire you until I die because, you know, I care about you and you're, you're a good man. doesn't do that. He could have said... I direct my executors to hire an attorney to make sure Robin can remain free in Virginia. So instead, Robin has the choice, 50 bucks if he moves to Pennsylvania, 100 bucks if he moves to Liberia, or he can stay in Virginia with his daughter and his friends and his other relatives as a slave. And that's what he ends up doing. Joseph's story is equally as interesting as John Marshall. Massachusetts man appointed by James Madison personally dislikes slavery, but he's, uh, his politics and the transformation he sort of has throughout his life is, is fascinating. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about Joseph Story's background? Um, and then, of course, I'm extremely interested in the Prig case. So Story begins as, as somebody who opposes slavery. And early in his court career, Wallace, while in those days, by the way, Supreme Court justices also heard cases, trial cases, it was called writing circuits. And so in the New England circuit, Story gets charges to the grand juries attacking the illegal trade, And they are some of the most passionate attacks on slavery ever made by an American political figure in Congress or on the courts. In a slave trade case, he says slavery violates natural law and slave trading is condemned. That's very early in his career. But after the mid-1820s, Story consistently either supports slavery or says nothing about it. In the famous Amistad case, which involved slave Africans who were illegally boarded and then and escape to America because the evidence is overwhelming that they were never slaves, that they were illegally taken to Cuba. And he writes an honest opinion about their status. But it's not an anti-slavery opinion. It's about a treaty. It's about uh, And in fact, the cabin boy of the Amistad, who was a Cuban slave, is sent back to Cuba. After the but the following year, he writes the most pro-slavery decision of any justice until Dred Scott, in a case called Prig versus Pennsylvania, in which he upholds the 1793 Fugitive Slave Law and basically says that no northern state can take any action whatsoever to protect its free blacks from being. Uh, it is an outrageous decision. It's overwhelmingly pro-slavery. And the only salt he throws to the northern states is he says northern states can't be forced to enforce the federal law. Now, defenders of stories say 
that by saying northern states can't be forced to defend, to, to enforce the federal law, it destroys writing of an anti-slavery decision. Because if the northern states don't enforce the law, southerners will have a hard time doing it. After the decision, Story writes to a U.S. senator from the South, and he explains that the Prigg decision could be a problem because northern states don't have to participate in the journey fugitive slaves. They can't protect free blacks. They can't protect people from kidnapping, but they don't have to be part of the process. And Story says, but there's an easy solution. Congress should pass a new, new law creating a commissioner in every county who has the power to enforce any federal law that a state judge has the power to. And he says in the letter, you don't even have to mention fugitive slaves. And that way, there will be a federal official in every county to enforce the law. That ultimately becomes the 1850 fugitive slave law. So story, so story, in a sense, is telling the senator how to be more pro-slavery. And here's the final piece of this. When Story dies, his son publishes a two-volume book called The Life and Letters of Joseph Story. And in that book, he publishes part of the letter to the Southern Senate because the first half of the letter is all about federal law and federal jurisprudence. But he deletes the last half of the letter about the fugitive slave law to hide the fact that his father was so pro-slave. One more, uh, and and I'll let you go. I, we have to talk about Roger Tawney and, okay. and Dred Scott. Another, so Tawney is hated in the North after Dred Scott, but. You talk about, again, historians sort of talk about Tawney and his ruling on Dred Scott as a departure from an otherwise yeah. sort of, uh, you know, his record's good if you take Dred Scott out of it. Um, right, right. So, so, so Tawney serves on the court for almost 30 years, appointed by Andrew Jackson. He writes a number of important opinions on various economic issues, and particularly in the 1930s, he becomes a darling of liberals because... Tawney's decisions in the 1830s and 40s and 50s had allowed the states to experiment with economic policy. And during the Depression, many of the states are trying to deal with the Depression in their own ways, and the Supreme Court keeps striking down these laws, saying they violate the Constitution. So a number of legal scholars say, hey, Tawney's really a great guy. We wish we had him today. He would be supporting state experimentation. Well, if they do that, then they have to deal with Dred Scott. So they all do the same. They all say it's an aberration. It comes late in his career. It's a bad decision by an old guy who really hasn't thought it through. It's not that old yet. It's interesting. One of the political scientists who teaches at the University of Virginia wrote in the most recent edition of his books on, on justices and politics that Tawney was just a you know, an old man and we should forgive his decision. At the time he wrote it, he was older than 20 and then for Dred Scott. And I was thinking, well, maybe I should forgive this old political science professor because he's too old to know what he's writing. But here's the thing. In Dred Scott, Tawney says that black people can never be citizens of the United States, even if free, even if they're allowed to vote. I mean, this is curious because blacks can vote in a number of states. Blacks have held public office in some states. Blacks voted for members of Congress and for presidential electors. And Tawney says, well, even if you can vote for a presidential elector in Massachusetts, even if you can vote for a member of Congress, even if you can be the district attorney in Lorain County, Ohio, which one black was before the Civil War, you're not a citizen of the U.S. But everything Tawney says in Dred Scott, he had said 35 years, 25 years earlier, 
when he had been the Attorney General under Andrew Jackson, when he was a very young man. So he had been anti-free black for his almost his entire adult life. He hated free blacks, and he's viciously pro-slavery. After the Emancipation Proclamation is written, Tony's still on the bench, he drafts an opinion declaring the Emancipation Proclamation unconstitutional just in case he gets a case to do it. He can't wait to strike down the Emancipation Proclamation. He can't wait to do what he can to protect slavery at every turn. And he says slavery is a specially protected interest. The great shock of Dred Scott, and this goes back to your question about the Northwest Ordinance, okay? because the Northwest Ordinance is passed under the Articles of Confederation, and then it is repassed by the U.S. Congress after the Constitution is written. After the Northwest Ordinance, Congress passes many, many laws limiting slavery in the West. The Missouri Compromise, limiting slavery north of the state of Missouri. The Wisconsin Enabling Act, banning slavery in Minnesota. One law after another, banning slavery in some parts of the West, and by the way, allowing slavery in other places, like Arkansas, or what becomes Oklahoma, or Alabama and Mississippi. In Dred Scott, to the great shock of everybody, Tony says all these laws are unconstitutional for two reasons. One, because slavery is a protected property, and therefore you can't ban it in federal territory. And two, because Congress doesn't have the power to regulate the federal territories. I mean, this is a shock. Congress has regulated every new state as a federal territory, and Tony says it's all unconstitutional. Congress can't regulate the territories. What Tony does is set up for the election of Abraham Lincoln because people are so disgusted with Tony's decision that Lincoln is able to carry it in North and win the election. Well, and what you what you write also is that once once Tawny once the decision goes that Dred Scott is not a citizen and therefore doesn't have the ability to sue, the case the case is dismissed. Correct? I mean, that's how any other judge would would rule. And then therefore, every you know, this is this is this is first year law school. This is civil procedure first year. The first thing you learn in law school is that a court can't decide a case unless a court has jurisdiction. Dred Scott sues claiming that he is a free citizen in Missouri, and he's suing John Sanford, who happens to live in New York at the time, under something called the Diversity Clause. The Diversity Clause says that citizens of one state can sue another state, citizens of another state in federal court. Dred Scott's suing in diversity. Tawny says at the beginning of the case, blacks can't be citizens, therefore Dred Scott can't sue. Therefore, what he should have said is, this case is dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. Instead, he goes on and on about the territories because he wants to protect slavery everywhere. It's remarkable. Once again, Paul Finkelman, the books are Slavery and the Founders, Race and Liberty in the Age of Jefferson, and Supreme Injustice, Slavery in the Nation's Highest Court. You've written many other things, Paul. So if you get a chance, check out, just type Paul Finkelman into C-SPAN or into Google. There's a lot of great work. And Paul, I want to thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to the History Tavern Podcast, and thank you to Dr. Paul Finkelman. Please check out his books, Slavery and the Founders, Race and Liberty in the Age of Jefferson, and Supreme Injustice, Slavery in the Nation's Highest Court. You can subscribe to the History Tavern Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify, or follow on Twitter and Facebook.